What's going on, guys? It's Hostile Q&A number 11, and we're going to do this in a few parts because there's about 250 questions, and I can't make this a four-hour video. So we're going to do like 40 minutes now. We'll do an hour later. We're going to get two, three parts in and try and knock out some of the best questions here um, out of all of these on Instagram. Uh, if you guys want to leave questions, uh, don't leave them in the comment section below. Go on my Instagram. Follow me there. And every once in a while, once a week, usually I'll post a, a post that will allow you to leave questions in the comments section for me to answer. It's probably the best way to do it. Um, all right. So you know what? Let's not waste any time. Let's set the timer. We got 40 minutes on the clock. Let's get to work. Okay. First question comes from Ellis Oliver one. And he says, what's your best ab workout? So, Abs, I feel like, are best trained in the form of vacuums. So the thing you would do most is every day or every other day you do vacuum. And doing a vacuum is when you pull your belly button all the way to your spine. It's kind of really sucking in, breathing out all the air, and really sucking in as much, sucking in your stomach as far as you can. And you're trying to take your belly button and bring it as close to your spine as you can. When you do that, you want to hold that for 10 seconds. So what the protocol is for me, what I've learned to do and actually has helped me make my stomach a little flatter was uh, 10 sets of 10 seconds. So you're going to pull a vacuum. You're going to hold it for 10 seconds, catch your breath, do it for another 10 seconds, catch your breath, do another for 10 seconds for 10, 10 of those. Okay. Now, as you get better at it, the rest period between your sets is going to get shorter because you're going to catch your breath faster because it'll be easier to do. The first few times you do it, 10 seconds might seem hard. It's like, oh my God, I can't hold my breath for that long while I'm, while I'm doing this vacuum. Um, but as you get better at it and as, it, as your muscles strengthen in your stomach, it will be easier to hold it in, which will allow you to hold it longer and recover faster. So for the first week, maybe do 10 seconds. The second week, bump it to 12 seconds. The third week, bump it to 13 or 14 seconds. You'll be able to feel yourself getting stronger at it. So do this every other day. I usually do it in the shower or after my workout. Just so I like to do it in the morning. So in the morning when I get up and I shower, I'm, on, I'm fasted. I have nothing in my stomach. I feel like it's really easy to pull in and hold. So that's my favorite time to do it. Um, or after my morning cardio when I'm still fasted some, somewhere along those lines. That's probably the best time for me to do it. So that's something I feel like you can do every day. And will just make your stomach smaller and smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter. A lot of people make the mistake of training abs every day. And I don't feel like that's beneficial, especially if you're doing it with weights, because you're just going to make your abs really thick. Um, doing the vacuums is actually going to tighten everything up. It's not building muscle. So it's a little bit different. Um, the same thing to train your TVA. You're training your to your TVA, which is your transverse abdominus. That's what doing a vacuum does. And you can do the same thing by doing planks. Planks are good, are good for training your TVA and tightening, up, tightening it up as well. Um, now, as for training abdominals to get that six-pack look, I feel like once or twice a week is good enough with weights. So I learned a little trick from Dante Trudell. If you take a, a cable uh, rope, if you set up a rope attachment to a cable and kind of behind your neck, you can pull forward with it. So the, the, the stack is actually behind you and you pull forward with it and do a crunch that way. 
there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. There's a bunch of machines you can use for, for crunches. You can do it. No machines. You can just do regular crunches, but I feel like weighted crunches once or twice a week will build those, those thick abs, the blocky six pack, but without making your waist thick. Cause if you do it, if you're doing it every day, you're going to build a lot of muscle in that area. And it might be harder to have that tight waist look. Um, that's just my, my advice. I, I'm not, a, I'm not known for the best midsection. So you can obviously get other opinions, but those two things are what's helping me recently bring my waist down uh, more than it was. Next question is Todd 1465 says, what is your post-workout routine? food timing, etc. So if I'm trying to be at my very best and I'm plugging everything in at the time I need it, the way I do things is I have a pre-workout shake and then I have an intro workout shake and then I usually just have a whole food meal right after the gym. Now the reason a lot of you might be saying, well, why aren't you having a post-workout shake? My intro workout shake has essential amino acids in it and it has uh, usually has carbs in it. So my muscle is fed while I'm training. So I don't need that, that half hour window where your body is starving and you got to run home and get your, you know, get the anabolic window filled in. I've already done that. I've been doing it while I was training. So one of our products for hostile supplements is an intra-workout product. And the intra-workout product has a full array of essential amino acids and it has uh cluster dextrin as well as dextrose in it. So it'll give you the carbs you need to also replenish the muscle. So there's also other ingredients that will help you with your workout. But um, those are two of the main ingredients that will help you stay anabolic and also uh, replenish glycogen stores to make it so that you don't have to rush home and get that shaken. So my routine is pre-workout meal, or sorry, pre-workout meal. Yeah. And then about an hour after that, I have a, my pre-workout shake. And then when I'm at the gym, I start drinking my intra-workout with my warm-up. Just as soon as I start training, I start drinking my intra-workout. And then I usually finish that by the time I'm done training. And then I just drive home. It takes 20 minutes. When I get home, I have a meal. And that's usually how it goes. It's, been, it's always worked for me. Now, if you don't have an intra-workout shake, then you're going to do your pre-workout shake. You're going to train. And when you get home, you're going to have something similar to the intra-workout shake that I have. So it's, you're going to have something like um, 30 to 50 grams of, of uh, a simple carb of some sort, like a dextrose, a vitargo, a cluster dextrin, high branch cyclic dextrin. Um, and you're going to do uh, a little bit of protein with it. So a good ratio would be like a two to one carbs to protein. And, that's it. You're going to have that shake. And then half an hour after that, 45 minutes after that, you're going to have a whole food meal. I personally don't like that. I like to just get it in while I'm training. That way, when I get home, I, I can just take my time and make my food and I'm ready to eat. I don't want to go home and drink a shake and then eat right after. It just, it doesn't feel normal to me. So it's going to be individual to the person. Boston Bavcon says favorite season and why spring, summer, fall, or winter? Uh, probably the spring. It's warm enough. I can drive my car. Uh, some of you don't know. I have a Corvette uh, Z06. It's put away for the winter, but in the springtime I get to take it out. So that makes me happy. And um, 
after a long winter, it's nice getting the sunny days and the, the snow and shit is off the road. And I think spring or fall, summer's too hot for me. Spring or the beginning of fall when it's not too cold yet, but it's just starting to kind of mild. Those are my favorite, favorite seasons. I feel like we're on a date. And I like somebody's <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, Morrison mass says in depth, look at what we should be looking for in our blood tests, good things and bad. Uh, blood work is pretty simple, man. It's, I know it seems complicated, but it's not the most important things you want to look for. And you should just go over them with your doctor to, to clarify. Okay. I don't, I don't think anybody should get blood work done and look at it without a professional or somebody extremely knowledgeable looking at it with them and telling them what's what, because your bro at the gym can, it's not hard to know what your liver enzymes are or your kidney or whatever, right? You can, you can figure those out eventually. You do it enough times, you figure it out. But there are certain trends and there are certain combinations of in your blood work that matter. So it's like this. I, let's, say your, your, let's say your kidney number, your, your creatinine level. Your creatinine level, and it's measured in different, different numbers, uh, different units in the U.S. Versus, Ameri- and versus Canada. In Canada, anything over 130 is considered high. Usually anything over 115 or 120, but if you're a bigger guy, you can get away with 130. You know, that's, that's okay. So if you go and you do a test and it's like 180, you're like, holy shit, are my kidneys failing? Like what's wrong with me? But there are other numbers like your creatine kinase number. Like how high is your creatine kinase number? If your creatine kinase number is extremely high because you trained yesterday, then your creatinine number is also going to be very high. So this is why I say it's important to have a professional or somebody extremely knowledgeable look at the blood work with you because just knowing the individual numbers is not enough. You need to know the combinations of why certain things are happening and your doctor is the best person to go over that with. So just for your own sake, when you go to a doctor to ask them what, like if you want blood work, I would say always get kidney liver or or number one. Uh, You want to get your thyroid checked. You want to get your blood sugar test, like your A1C. Um, uh, what am I saying here? Kidney, liver, thyroid, cholesterol, uh, blood sugar. Um, and then you're going to get your red blood cell count, your white cell blood count, your hemoglobin and all that checked. Um, those are usually the main ones. I actually don't even usually get my test levels checked or anything like that. I usually just get, I just want to know what my organs are doing. And then if you want to go even further, like I had calcium scoring done on my heart. <coughs> Excuse me. I had calcium scoring done on my heart uh, and things like that to make sure everything was functioning properly and I had no blockages or anything like that. I've actually had an angiogram too. I went so far as to have an angiogram. For those of you who don't know, an angiogram is where they kind of put you under and they inject you with a dye to see where the dyes are going in your veins of your heart and to see if there's any blockages in your veins in your heart. So there are a number of tests you can get, but the main ones you want to get on your blood work, you know, three, four times a year are the five I said. So you're going to do, like I said, kidney, liver, cholesterol, um, blood sugar, and thyroid. And then on top of those five, you'll have all your white and red blood cell counts to check. And those are usually standard on any blood work. And, um, and then after you get it done, take it to somebody. If your doctor doesn't call you back or whatever, or you, let's say you get it done at like a life labs or something like that, and you have your blood work, 
don't just think you know what you're looking at. Make sure you take it to somebody that knows or your coach might know or something, but make sure they really know and they don't just say they know. But the best thing to do is take it to your doctor and, and have them go over it with you thoroughly. And if your doctor's an asshole that is like, I don't want to help you because you're doing steroids, find a new doctor because that doctor's a dick. Because a real, a, a good doctor is there to help you and he's not there to judge you. So if you find a, a, a doctor that's judging you and he's like, well, you're doing steroids, I don't want to help you, say, fine, I'll find a new doctor. This isn't working for me. You, if you have a goal and you're going to do something anyway, it's better to find a doctor to help you with your goal and keep you healthy. Morrison Mass. Oh, we already went, went did that one. Uh, Alexander W. Wallace says, why did you stop taking finasteride? You mentioned you used to take it and stopped, and that's when you went bald. Um, oh, I'm not completely bald. My hair is just thin, and I don't think it looks good when I grow it out. So I'm not bald, but I might as well be. So anyway, um, touchy subject. <laughs> um, I, I was taking finasteride for a long time. At the time, it's also called the, the other, other name for it is Proscar or Propecia. And it actually kept my hair, but I didn't think that was what was doing it. I just thought my hair was sticking around. And then there was also some reports of it being uh, related to cancer and this and that. And I think it was prostate cancer it was connected to. So I just kind of got paranoid. And I was like, you know, and I had, at the time I had my hair shaved into a mohawk. And I thought, well, the bald areas aren't really around the mohawk. So I'll just stop taking this drug. When I stopped taking uh, Proscar or Finasteride, I started noticing patches of hair kind of falling out and my hair thinning out much, much faster. Um, so if you are on it, there's actually a new generation of finasteride out called Avodart. It's A-V-O-D-A-R-T. Ask your doctor about it. Um, Avodart actually is supposed to be the next generation of finasteride and actually is supposed to be uh, healthy for you while being able to keep your hair. And actually some people say is supposed to regrow hair, which I don't believe, but uh, I would ask your doctor about that if you're concerned or want to, uh, you're trying to focus on keeping your hair, ask your doctor, see what he says about it. Beast 401 says, choose body parts by race to build the ideal bodybuilder. <laughs> Here we go with the race. Here we go with the race shit. Uh, you know what? I'll do this one with Luke. I'll, do, I'll, I'll try and remember and do this one with Luke on uh, Bodybuilding's Bollocks podcast. It, it will be a lot funnier. Jacob Cena says cardio to improve vascularity. Uh, no. Car well, yes, indirectly. Indirectly, yes. Vascularity is, okay, everybody wants to have veins. I don't know why. I don't think veins are cool, but some people do, I guess. Veins come as a result of muscle growth and conditioning, okay? When you're 150 pounds and you're shredded, but you don't have any veins, it's because you're 150 pounds. The veins are there. It's just as you get, as you build muscle, as you grow, the veins get bigger. Okay. Your veins get thicker uh, and they're, they're more pronounced when well, you can see them more. Okay. So you need more muscle, number one, to see more veins. Um, but that's not the only thing. That's one aspect. Okay. The second thing is conditioning. If you're not lean, you're not going to see veins. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are. If you're, if you're 15% body fat, you're probably not going to see a lot of veins. You might see like, like this bicep vein right here. I'm chubby right now. This vein will always be here. Right. But 
if you're just starting out or you don't have a lot of muscle and you're in your 15% body fat, you're not going to see any veins. Okay. Uh, the last thing is genetics. Genetics play a major part in how vain you are. I mean, look at, it's very simple. Look at Frank McGrath, just like a roadmap veins everywhere. They're just crawling. Right. And then you look at somebody like Dexter, no veins. So there's a genetic component, there's a conditioning component, and there's a size of the muscle component. So you need all three. And when I see people saying like, oh, I'm going to eat this thing or eat this simple sugar, or I'm going to eat this, and it brings the veins out. I mean, yeah, it does because you're taking in a simple sugar and it's causing you know, glycogen stores to push the muscle, which will push the veins against the skin. But you have to have the size and the conditioning for those veins to appear. So always remember that first. If you want to have, if you want to be vascular, you got to be shredded. Okay. That's one. And if you want to be vascular and you want to be really vascular, you got to have a lot of muscle and then it'll show. P Guerrero 03 says, have you ever had surgery on a hernia and how is the recovery process with training? Yes, I have. I had two hernias. I had a, I had them repaired at the same time. I had a umbilical hernia and I don't know what the other one is, but it was a couple inches higher than my uh, belly button um, in the, in the, in the ab wall. I had both, uh, corrected at the same time, but I had them done at the Cleveland clinic by Dr. Gorskin. I think it was Gorskin is his name. Uh, I went there. And then after I went there, uh, Chris Bumstead went there. Rami went there. Phil Heath went there because the recovery is like a week. It's like, it wasn't even like he did the surgery and they use lasers to cut and everything. And they use like a special wire, a flexible wire to uh, sew in like a Gore-Tex or some shit or, or Kevlar. I can't remember what they sewed, how they sewed it together, but it was a special procedure they did and they don't use knives. They use lasers, which means the healing process is a lot faster and less painful. So I was literally back in the gym doing leg press like a week later. Uh, not super heavy. Like he told me to start back, like, you know, moderate weight, but yeah, I, I remember like three or four days later, I was back in the gym. And then a week after I was like, I was back in the gym training arms or something light. And then a week after my surgery, I trained my first leg day and I was fine. So, but I paid a lot of money to get it done. It was like seven grand. Um, I could have done the free healthcare thing here. Uh, one of the best, uh, hernia practices in the world is in Toronto. Uh, it's called Shouldice, S-H-O-U-L-D-I-C-E. But it was a three-month wait, and it was also like a two-month recovery. So the wait wasn't so broad, was such such a big problem, and it was it was free. I mean, you can't you can't beat free. But I didn't want to do the two-month recovery afterwards, so I paid the money out of my own pocket, and I had it done in the U.S. Um, so my recovery, I got in right away and my recovery was done right away. So the whole process took two weeks. So those are your options. Uh, strangest bodybuilding meal you've created. Matt Zilla says, um, this is really disgusting, but you know, when you're dieting, those of you who've competed, you get to a point where anything starts to taste good. If you're dieting, right. If you're doing it right things that you usually hate start to taste good, like fish and like, I can't eat fish, but when I'm dieting, I can eat. I'm so hungry. I'll eat cod or Pollock or sole or tilapia or whatever. Right. It doesn't matter. Even though I can't stand it. So same thing was kind of happening. And I'm like, okay, I was starting to put together different concoctions. And I felt like for some reason I felt like meatloaf 
I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. And somehow I took one of those baking trays uh, that you make like little banana bread loaves in. And I put oatmeal and ground beef in it. And I, <laughs> I put it in the oven. <laughs> so, it was fucking disgusting. It tasted actually not bad in the moment. And actually, you know, it's funny if you guys have competed before. While you're eating it, you're like, oh, this is, you know what? This is pretty good. I think I'm going to make this in the off season. And I swear to God, as soon as I had like one bite of anything normal, I was like, that was fucking disgusting. I can't believe I fucking even made that shit. Who puts oatmeal and ground beef and tries to make fucking meatloaf? What the fuck was I thinking? I don't know. But yeah, it, when you're when you're dieting for a show, you just make really, really strange combinations of things because you're trying to make stuff taste better. And you're trying, trying to make like food interesting because you're so hungry. And you end up coming up with some of the weirdest shit possible. Benji... Uh, Ben, I'm sorry. Ben Gibson, 83 says, I tried putting a mint in my mouth to, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I got to read this out loud. Sorry guys. (laughs) This this was, uh, it was on the bodybuilding bollocks podcast. (laughs) I tried putting a mint in my mouth the other day and then the night when my girlfriend was sucking me off, but nothing happened. Those of you who watch the Bodybuilding and Bollocks podcast will get that inside joke. And if you haven't watched it, man, it's straight nonsense. So some of you guys should check it out. Uh, Lepin97 says, when do you think a bulk goes overboard and when do you look, what do you look for? Um, I honestly got to say, like, if you've lost all your lines completely. A bulk is a, is a personal thing, in my opinion. Like some people can bulk hard, like like Lee Priest. You know, you look back at the day, Lee Priest's off-season photos, and he looks like he's not even a bodybuilder. But he's thick as fuck, and he put on the muscle he needed on stage. So you can't argue with it. You know what I mean? You can make fun of him all you want. But he stepped on stage and was top six at the Olympia after having that off-season. So how can you argue with that, right? It's It works for him. So that's why I'm saying it's an individual preference. Now, if you're so lean that you're not at the end of the year, you're netting like three pounds of muscle, then you're too fucking lean. Like that's how you know you didn't do it right. You didn't do your off season right. If you're so worried about getting fat that you were like 180 pounds on stage last year, and then you got to the stage this year and you're like 183 and you're in the same condition, you did something wrong you should be able to put on a minimum of five to 10 pounds of stage weight every year. Not obviously forever. You're going to get to a point where you hit your genetic limit and you're just not going to grow anymore. Like I've been around 255, 260 for the last five years. Like it's not going to go, I'm not going to be much bigger than 260 ever. I don't think so. Um, but that's how, you know, you went too light. Now, if you go too heavy, the same thing happens. Let's say you put on, like I'll give you an example in 2004 or three, 2003, it was my first nationals that previous off season. I got up to 286 pounds. I went on stage at like 204. I lost 82 pounds in that prep. If you're losing 82 pounds, you fucking went way too far. And honestly, 
if you're losing 82 pounds to put on 10 pounds of muscle, that's not bad. I think I only put on like three or four pounds. And that's when I knew, okay, this is horrible. And what I did that year was I just ate a whole bunch of shit. I was like Chef Boyardee and fucking uh, mac and cheese. And it was all just garbage. I'm like, I just got to get calories in, get calories in, get calories. I didn't have like a base diet plus cal- plus shitty calories. It was all shitty calories. So you have to judge by, in my opinion, while you're going, there's, that's one way to look at it, right? The other way to look at it is while you're in it. If you can't see any lines anywhere, like if you're so fat that like there's no line here between your del- – like I'm chubby right now, right? There's still, there's still some separation between the delt and the arm. There's still some separation in my chest. There's still some – you can still see some visible abs. Is my ass chubby? Yeah. Do I have love handles? Yeah. Is my back all fucking detailed? No. But um, you can see the outline of where things are supposed to be. And I feel like a good off-season is when all of those muscles are really, really thick and they're all covered with a little bit of fat, but you can still point them out, okay? If you're so fat that your back just looks like one sheet of skin and you can't see anything, no bumps, no bubbles, no detail, no, then you've got too fat. If your stomach is so out of control that you can't see any of your abs, you're too fat. Okay. So it's really just, you have to take progress photos every week is what I would do. I would weigh myself, but I would also take progress photos because weighing yourself is important. So you know, you're growing, but the progress photos are also important. So you know, you're growing the right way. Okay. So Every Saturday morning or something like that, get your girlfriend or boy, your 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 boyfriend, or your your uh, one of your boys at the gym to take a photo of you, and then look at them every Saturday and go, okay, I'm bigger, I'm bigger, I'm bigger. This was my weight this Saturday. This was my weight in this photo. This was my weight in this photo, and you can see a progression. And if the weight starts to go too high, and the fucking the detail in the photos is gone. You got to pull back a bit on the food, add some cardio, do things like that. Okay. There's, there's a lot of different variables you can change to keep your weight, your fat in check while gaining muscle. And if you find a good coach, you can, they can help you with that, but just don't get too out of shape. But that's such a hard term to use because some people would look at me and go, man, you're really out of shape. And some people would look at me and go, man, you're really lean. So you have to have a set standard in your mind of how much weight you want to put on every week. Okay. I put on two pounds a week, two pounds a week, two pounds a week, two pounds a week, eight pounds a month. Okay. Two months later, I'm 16 pounds heavier. Do I look 16 pounds bigger or do I look 16 pounds fatter? That's kind of how you have to judge. And if you're like, okay, maybe it's getting too much. I only should have put on 10 pounds instead of 16 then you go, okay, I'm going to scale back a bit on the carbs and just try and put on one pound a week. Okay. So, but then there's other ways to do it too. You could, you could start an off season and go, okay, I'm going to put on 40 pounds and I'm going to hold it right there. I've done that too. I've done a I've done an off season where I was like, okay, I'm going to eat my way up to 300. It doesn't look that great, but I'm going to stay at 300 for like eight months. And that 300 will get, leaner after eight months you'll grow into your weight so that's the other way to look at it too so you you kind of have to decide which way you want to go on this one 
Lee Curry 514 says, how do you work out your, your calorie intake? I want to be, um, the best way to do it, in my opinion, is go online, look at the Harris Benedict type, go to Google, type in Harris Benedict equation, and then just punch in your numbers. It'll ask you for uh, your age, your weight, your whatever, and you'll type that all in, and it'll give you your calories, your, your basal, metabolic, basal metabolic index, which is your calories for the day, your daily caloric intake. And then there'll be another chart there that will, that will you'll multiply that weight or those amount of calories by how much work you do. So it'll say like, if you're very, very, very active, it'll be multiplied by 1.6. If you're mildly active, multiply by 1.4. If you're by, and go down the list, right? So you'll multiply by that number that works with your activity level. And that will give you your daily intake needs, your daily caloric needs for the day. And um, in my opinion, it's the best way to do that. Now, if you want to be in a deficit, you find that out. And you just subtract by whatever number you want to be in a deficit by, which is probably, you know, two to 500, depending on, on how aggressive you are. CB8817 says, what is the longest you've gone without sleep while sticking to your routine and regimen? Thanks for being so interactive. Um, the longest I've gone without sleep, I try and get sleep every night. Now, when I'm dieting for a show, my sleep is really shitty. It gets like... I'll go to bed at two in the morning. I'll wake up at three thirty, five thirty, six, and then seven. Okay, I'm like, okay, fuck it. Seven o'clock. I'm getting up. I've gotten four hours sleep. It was all choppy and all shitty. That happens to me a lot uh, during a contest diet, and it uh, it's not healthy and it's not good for you. But when I'm that hungry, I just can't sleep. So there's a lot of sleep deprivation in dieting but i've never gone a continuous like day or two or three without sleeping i've never done that mike johnston 211 says things you do on the daily to stretch out your shoulders rotator cuffs uh, i actually do some foam rolling i have a, a vibrating foam roller by tim tam tim tam makes it they also make a massage gun i use that vibrating foam roller every morning i get on it i get on my shoulder and uh try and work out the front, the back, the sides, underneath. Um, that's my main go-to. And then the other way to work your shoulder, to stretch out your shoulders is literally just hanging. So I'll set up a bench in front of a Smith machine. I'll put my feet up on the bench and like kind of like in a sitting position. I'll rest my feet on the bench and then I'll just hang from uh, from a Smith machine bar. And just let my body, you can, I mean, you don't have to, you can do, do it on any bar you want, but I just like my legs are supported. So it's just my back is being stretched out. And uh, you, you do that for two to five minutes and that will open up the shoulder joint and allow for more movement. Now, if you already have a problem in there, that might not be the way to go because that hanging might make it worse. Uh, but I would see a therapist if I were you because, um, if you have any injuries, that's always see a therapist and get an actual diagnosis. Okay. If you don't, and you're trying to make sure you don't get injuries, do the hanging thing to keep your shoulders opened up. And then I like the, I like the foam rolling and the massage gun myself. Big Z Mac from personal experience and other bodybuilders you've heard from, heard from do PD shut your fertility down. I've heard mixed answers. Um, 
they can. They can shut your fertility down, but it doesn't mean they will. So I know bodybuilders who have had zero sperm, none. They've gone to get a fertility check and the doctor is literally like, you have zero sperm. I also know those same bodybuilders have come back after a year of like HCG therapy that the doctor doctors given over protocol with HCG and other drugs that they've come back and had better than normal fertility. So it is possible to come back from in some cases. Um, but I also know bodybuilders who have been on for 20 years and then got somebody pregnant while they were on. So it doesn't mean just because you're on a cycle that you can't get somebody pregnant. And it doesn't mean just because you're on a cycle that you're going to be infertile or I'm going to have zero sperm or whatever that, but there is also that chance. So, and it's probably likely depending on how much you take and how often you take it or how long you've been taking it, it's probably going to be likely that you are going to be less fertile or infertile, but it doesn't mean that you will be. So it's, there's not really an answer for you. I can't say yes or no, because I know both scenarios. Uh, somebody has been on, has gotten somebody pregnant. Somebody has been on, has been infertile. So Depends on the person. Everybody's different. Luke Manning Peter says, best, repeat, best routine to build mature muscle? Just jump between lifting heavy and focusing on volume. There's no really, there's not really routine to help build mature muscle. If you listen to the actual meaning of the word, it's mature muscle. It just means it's time, right? It's the time to build maturity. So like, you're going to build mature muscle no matter how you train. The How fast it comes is depends on how you train, I guess. if I think if you train with a very high intensity and high volume type of – I shouldn't say high intensity and high volume because they're two different things. But what I meant was if you train heavy with high volume, you're probably going to end up getting mature muscle faster, but you also might getting end up more getting more, more damage because you're putting so much – you're taxing the muscle so much, right? Like me, for example, I'm injured all the time because I always trained heavy, but with high volume, those two in combination work to build muscle, but they also can be detrimental to your physique and your, your soft tissues. And you can end up, end up with injuries and things like that. So as far as building mature muscle, if you just train hard, your muscle will mature over time. There's no way to really make it happen with a certain exercise or a certain protocol. It's just, takes time and hard training. Um, Chris Haynes, 98, says, other than the fitness industry, what other hobbies do you gravitate to? Cars. Cars are my – I love cars. Uh, I love buying cars. I love modifying my cars. I love going to the track whenever I can. Uh, I love watching car shows. I almost actually decided to do a car show on my YouTube channel, which I still might. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, that's one of my main passions. Uh, I always wanted to be a race car driver, but I didn't grow up in a very wealthy family. So race car driving was not in the cards for me. Um, other than that, I like watching brutal nature shows about lions that kill fucking animals and bears that kill animals and shit like that. It's fascinating to me watching nature work and how brutal it can be. Um, so those are my two that sounds fucked up but yeah those are my my main two hobbies 
Dylan Crossina says, best advice you could give a starter aside from eating being the hardest part. Consistency. Dylan, uh, consistency is your number one aspect of bodybuilding. Because even if you're on kind of like a shitty program and you're only eating like four times a day, at least if you're doing it every day, your body will respond, okay? Um, I think the hardest part in bodybuilding is not eating. The hardest part in bodybuilding is being consistent. I did this workout. I did this fucking workout the hardest of my ability. Some people work out hard one day and then they kind of take the next day off or they'll work out hard three days and then take the next day. I don't feel like training that hard today. Or they'll work out really hard and on the weekends like, oh, it's arm day. I'm going to the bar tonight. Fucking just do a couple pump exercises and fuck off. It's the consistency that makes the best bodybuilders. It's not, I mean, genetics plays a part. Yes. Everything plays a part. Genetics, drugs, uh, everything, right? But one of the main facets that separates the really, really great bodybuilders from the just okay bodybuilders or from the guys that never turn pro is usually the consistency. Sorry, guys. It's usually the consistency. It's usually the guys who become the greatest bodybuilders in the world are the guys who know how to take the time, set up their diets, set up their training schedules, set up their protocols, get their supplementation in. They know how to do everything on the clock every single day without skipping a beat. Those are the guys who become the greatest. When you take somebody like a Phil Heath or a Jay Cutler or a Ronnie Coleman or a Dorian Yates, and you take these people that have out-of-this-world genetics that are just they're beyond, the, beyond any normal human. When you take somebody like that, it's not just their genetics that made them so great. When you take somebody that with that type of DNA makeup, and you add the consistency of the day in day out ritual of eating, training, supplementation, protocols, everything all the time, never missing a beat, never missing a meal. When you add that to somebody with that genetic makeup, you get a Dorian Yates, you get a Ronnie Coleman, you get a Jay Cutler, a Phil Heath. And you know, it's funny people point at Phil Heath and they say, Oh, it's just his genetics. Yeah. It's his genetics, but it's also the fact that he was able to consistently plug in all the different factors every single day to the point where he became the best in the world. And the guys who aren't the best in the world are missing one of those ingredients. They're either don't have the genetics, they're missing meals here and there, they're missing, their training isn't always 100%, something is off, something is not always there, right? It's, it's got to be one piece of the puzzle, but that's who becomes Mr. Olympia, the guy who has every piece of the puzzle and they maximize it with the consistency. So to go back to your question about what's the best thing to tell somebody new, figure out your plan and then figure out how to nail it every fucking day. That's the best way to become better than everybody else because everybody else doesn't know how to do that shit every single day. They're going to skip a meal. They're going to skip a training session. Or even if they make the training session, it's going to be fucking lazy and they're going to fuck around. You learn to nail the shit every day and you'll excel past everyone. Phil Fitness. Best way to mentally get back into prep. Had to deal with some depression this following year and trying to come back and compete in 2020. Best way to get back into that contest prep mindset. Flip the fucking switch. That's all there is to it. Listen, there's no secret. 
you're going to get on stage in 12 weeks or 16 weeks, however long, and you're going to be standing in front of a whole bunch of people in your fucking underwear. Okay. And this is the perfect recipe for depression in my opinion, because you have no choice. You can't lay in your bed and be depressed and then win a show. You have no fucking choice. This is what has to be done. This is the recipe. You have to get up. You have to do your cardio. You have to get your meals in. You have to get your training in. You have to fucking make sure you cook and prepare all your food because you can't eat out. You can't eat your mom's house. You can't eat your girlfriend's house. You got to eat your food the way you prepared it every single day. You got to get all your cardio in. It doesn't matter if you're depressed because no one gives a shit. I'm sorry to tell you. When you get on stage, if you're not in shape, no one gives a shit about your excuses. I've been, <laughs> I tore my quad like three weeks out from the Arnold's. Nobody cares. At the end of the day, they might care in the first month. Oh, oh, you know, uh, so-and-so was depressed and they didn't have a good time and that's why they weren't in shape. They might back you up for a little while. But when the time passes, like a year later, nobody gives that's my 40 minutes. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares that I tore my quad. Nobody cares. They're like, Fuad was sixth at, sixth at the Arnold's and his legs look like shit. Nobody's going to remember that I tore my quad. The pictures that are out there are just Fuad with shitty legs. So when you think I'm depressed, I don't know how to get back into the mindset of competing. Think there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are taking photos. There's going to be a whole bunch of people that are watching. There's going to be a whole bunch of people that are judging me. And either I have it or I don't. Either I want to get up, get out of this fucking bed, and get to the gym and fucking do my work and get this shit done and knock off, make a checklist, check it off every single fucking day, right? And I want to step on stage and conquer my demons. Or you're going to say, it's too much for me. I can't handle it. I don't want to, I don't want the criticism. I don't want to, I don't want to be judged. I don't want to, I'm scared. And I'm just going to stay in bed because it's easy and it feels good and nobody can judge me here and I can just hide in under my blankets. And that's all that matters. To me, the choice is easy, man. I've dealt with anxiety. I've dealt with depression. The best, best, best advice I've ever given anybody with anxiety, including myself, when I've had a talk with myself about it, or anxiety or depression, is get the fuck up. Get the fuck up and just go do what you're supposed to do. Nobody has ever gotten up out of bed and gone to the gym when they didn't want to, had a good workout, and then finished and been like, I wish I never came. No. No one's ever said that. If you get up and get yourself to go, and when you get there, you actually put in effort, you will always feel better. So as far as getting into the competition mindset, you have to ask yourself, do I want to win? Do I want to embarrass myself? Do I want to, do I want to show people that I still have it? Do I want to prove to myself that I can conquer this thing? Because, listen, man, one of the most beautiful things about bodybuilding is that it builds your character without you even fucking knowing it. Okay. I believe in my heart that I would be less of a person had I never competed or done bodybuilding. And it's not because bodybuilding is the be all end all of everything. It's because it puts you in situations that are uncomfortable and you have to force your way through them. 
to get to the end goal. And when you do, it proves to you that you are a better human than you thought you were. You're a stronger person than you thought you were. Because we all have insecurities and we all think we're weak at times or I can't do this or I can't do that. And when you tell yourself, look, I'm going to do this, it doesn't matter how easy or hard it is. And when you set a plan for yourself and it's three months long, 12 weeks, and you actually execute every single week the way it's supposed to be executed, and you get on stage and you finish, even if you don't win, but even if you tried your best the full 12 weeks, there is no better sense of accomplishment in the world and nothing else will teach you how to finish, how to get through something like that. Because it's going to be hard along the way. You're going to be hungry. You're going to have doubts. It's going to teach you to ignore your negative self-speak, which we do every day in every scenario. It's going to teach you that just because you're hungry doesn't mean you're going to die. It's going to teach you that just because your legs are tired at 35 minutes, it doesn't mean you can't finish 10 more minutes and do the 45 for cardio. It's going to teach you that you're a much stronger person than you ever thought you were. And that's very, very golden and valuable in this world when you channel that into anything other than bodybuilding. So my advice, if you have depression or you have anxiety and you're worried or don't know how to get started, just get fucking started. Get the plan in front of you and just execute one hour at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time. And before you know it, it'll be 12 weeks and you'll be like, I'm a lot better than I thought I was. And you'll, you'll be thankful that you did it. So, okay, guys, I got to go. I got to train legs, but I thought I would get this in before I go. Um, we're going to leave that one there, but uh, I'm going to try and get to more questions um, in part two. So for now, that's it. Get your food in, get your meals in. Don't fuck around. Be very consistent with everything. Train hard and get back. And We'll do part two coming soon. Thanks, guys.